0: Once again, let me say Happy Sabbath to everyone. Happy Sabbath. It is a privilege to be here with you all at Southwest Youth Conference, and I'm thankful to God for another year that the Lord has spared all of your lives. It's so good to see so many faces. And I believe that the Lord wants to take us higher. Amen? Amen. Amen. In order for God to do that, it's going to be imperative that you and I make sure that our minds and our hearts are prepared to hear whatever the Spirit of the Lord has to say to us. God does not send ministers to speak what the people want to hear, but God sends ministers to come to speak what the people need to hear. So you have to avail yourselves and open your hearts and let God say what he has to say and make sure that you pray, Lord, give me ears to hear. You also want to make sure that you have pen and paper. Don't trust your brain. The sermons you're going to hear throughout this weekend are not going to be the type of messages where there's one or two sermons and hours upon hours of what we think about it. These are going to be sermons that are going to have text upon text, quote upon quote, and you want to write them down so that way you can review them, be good Bereans, and make sure that you heard thus saith the Lord. Amen? All right, tonight's topic, we're going to be talking about Satan's attack on the remnant church, Satan's attack on the remnant church. As we prepare to go into this message, I'm going to invite that as much as you are able to, let us kneel together one more time as we approach the Lord in prayer. If you cannot kneel, just bow your heads where you are. Otherwise, let us kneel together as we go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have brought us all safely through another week. Father, we thank you that you have allowed such a time as this where an entire conference can take place focusing on the home lord we know that there's much that heaven has to say about the home and so we pray father that you will please perform a miracle over this weekend we know that the time is short but we know that you don't need much time as long as hearts are opened to receive thy spirit So, Lord, we ask you to please forgive us of our sins and that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that you would open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things from your word. And may your spirit come and may he teach us. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. I'm thankful to God that we have the privilege to focus on the home. Because, again, there's really much that the Lord has to say about it. And it's a great burden, I know, upon my own heart and my wife's heart and our children. We want to be Christians in our home. And I know you do, too. That's why you're here. Now, God has several ways to teach us how we can have success. But I believe that there's some principles that the Lord wants to lay down tonight as a foundation that's going to help us. That if we get these principles right, it'll literally direct our minds for the rest of this weekend. And it's going to help us to really receive the things that God has to say to to us through his several agencies. Now, one of the things we want for sure is we want to see success. We want to see success in the home. We want to see success in the church. We want to see success in the work. Amen? Amen. 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 Now, if I were to try to think of someone in the Bible who was successful in their work, There are several names that I can come up with, but especially when I think of New Testament characters, I find myself often thinking about the Apostle Paul. How many of you would agree by the raise of hands that the Apostle Paul was a successful minister? How many of you would agree with that? Amen? Amen. So we would agree that Paul was a very successful minister. Now, if someone came to you and were to ask you the question, why do you believe that Brother Paul was such a successful minister, what would be your answer? This is a question I'm asking you that you can answer. How many of you have an answer when someone would say to you, why do you think Brother Paul's ministry was so successful? The screen is working here. So thank you for that. How many of us would say that? Who would, by the raise of hand, give an answer? Someone says, you believe Paul was successful. Your answer is, yes, I do. They say, why? Your answer is what? What would you say? Someone here in this row here. What would you say is one of the reasons why you believe that Paul had such a successful ministry? What would you say? Go ahead. He answered God's call. Excellent. Anyone in this row here? Yes. He, has love for the he had love for the people. Beautiful. How about somebody here to my far left? Anyone? Anyone? All right. Yes, my brother. We can, tell through his writings. we can tell that God was leading him through his writings the way he wrote. It was a man with experience. Beautiful. Someone to my far right. Anyone here? Why did Paul have success? He had a prayerful life. Now, all of you have said answers that are excellent. It is true that Paul definitely had a call from God. He had a love for the people. He had a very strong prayer life. His writings testify to the profoundness of the spirit of God working in and through him. But could I add just one more thing? That I can show you from the word of God of why Paul was so successful in his ministry. Go to the book of Second Corinthians, chapter two. I want you to see something. In 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, I want to show you another reason why Brother Paul was so successful in his ministry. And I want you to see this because every home has a ministry. Every church has a ministry for sure. And all of God's agencies have ministries. Now, I want you to see this in 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 2. When you get there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're just going to go ahead and consider. uh, We'll go ahead and start. At Verse eight. Now, let me give you the backdrop in the church of Corinth. There were several problems, several issues. There were family issues. There were issues going on in the church. Lots and lots of problems. Now, in second Corinthians chapter two, there was obviously a problem of a brother who had fallen into sin. And now Paul is counseling the brethren in the church to forgive this brother. Now, Paul begins to go ahead in his counsel to them, and we're going to start at verse 8. And look, look at how Paul is breaking this down to those who are in the church of Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 8, Wherefore, I beseech you that you would do what? Confirm your love toward him. So this brother fell, and Paul wanted us to confirm their love to him so that this brother would not be overtaken in the guilt that fell upon him because of the sin he committed. Now, look at what he says in verse nine. He says, for to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. Verse 10, to whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. So Paul is really emphasizing this importance of forgiveness, dealing with this brother who has fallen into sin. Now, after Paul admonishes and makes this point that he says, as I'm encouraging you to forgive, I'm also letting you know that I forgive this individual as well in the person of Christ. He then says something very important in verse 11. What's the first word in verse 11? It says lest. In other words, if I don't do this, if I don't manifest this, something's going to happen. Look at what he says. He says lest Satan should get what? An advantage of us. Now, I love this last sentence. What does it say? It says, For we are not ignorant of his devices. You want to know another reason why Paul's ministry was so powerful? Is because he was not ignorant on how Satan works. He was not ignorant. He literally said that if I was ignorant, Satan would have had what over him? An advantage. So therefore, he understood, I must understand how this individual works so that, not that I would give him glory, heaven forbid, but brothers and sisters, he says, I want to understand how he works, what are his devices, so that when it comes in front of me, I can see it and call it by its right name. Are you following so far? Now, Jesus understood this principle of Christian warfare as well. Go to the book of Luke, the 14th chapter. Let me show you something. The very words of Jesus now. Jesus also taught and and emphasized this very same principle that Brother Paul just brought out. He just uses it in different language. Now, go to the book of Luke, the 14th chapter, and I want you to see this. Luke 14. And we're just going to go ahead and look at this. Luke 14. This is where Jesus is presenting all the prerequisites for being a good disciple now. In Luke 14, you find in verse 26, he talks about putting him first in comparison to even the closest of those in the family, even mother, father, son, daughter, brother, sister, and so on. But in verse 31, he presents a question that I thought was beautiful. Look at the question Jesus asks in Luke 14, verse 31. The Bible says, or what king going to make what? War. War. He says, or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down what? First, and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Even Jesus understood the principle of warfare. And he said the same way that a king would dare not go into war without first understanding some things about how his enemy behaves himself. Jesus understood that. You see, brothers and sisters, there is a warfare that's taking place in the Adventist home, in case you don't know it. There's a warfare that's taking place even in the Christian church. But brothers and sisters, I believe that many of us do not understand his devices. So sometimes we find ourselves beating against the air and God wants us to fight the good fight of faith. faith. Now, I want you to look at this. The reason why this is so important, I want you to think about this. Satan's devices. When we consider Satan's devices, notice what inspiration says. It says none. How many? None. It says none are in greater danger from the influence of evil spirits than those who, notwithstanding the direct and ample testimony of the scriptures, deny the existence and agency of the devil and his angels. No one is in greater danger than anyone who denies his existence or the movements of his angels. But watch this. It says so long as we are what ignorant of their wiles, they have almost inconceivable advantage. I want you to catch that if we're ignorant of his wiles, if we don't understand how he works, it says that he would have inconceivable. That means your mind can't imagine it inconceivable advantage over us. Notice the quotation next. It goes on to say, many give heed to their suggestions. In other words, demons will literally come to people, speak in their ear, and give all sorts of thoughts. Then it says many give heed to their suggestions while they suppose themselves to be following the dictates of their own wisdom. There are people who are literally following the counsels of devils, and they think it's their own counsel. They actually think it's their own ideas. Now, it goes on to say, this is why as we approach the close of time, it says, when Satan is to work with greatest power to deceive and destroy, he spreads everywhere the belief that he does not exist. It is his policy to conceal himself and his manner of working. It's his policy. He makes it his job, his occupation, that we must not be clearly identified in our work. Now, notice this, It goes on to say there is how many things? Nothing. Nothing. There is nothing that the great deceiver fears so much as that we shall become acquainted with his devices. I think it's about high time we make the whole host of hell tremble tonight. Great Controversy 516. Brothers and sisters, we must understand that inspiration is telling us both from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy that one of the ways that we're going to have success in the home, one of the ways we're going to understand how to have success in the church is that we must understand not only Christ and his character, but we also are to understand our enemy and his devices so that when he shows up, we can identify him for who he is. If you're following the preacher so far, let me hear you say amen. amen. Now, let's go to the book of John, the eighth chapter, one of the sweetest statements from the lips of Jesus. in John, the eighth chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says as we consider something wonderful that Jesus says to you and I. And I want you to consider this in John, the eighth chapter. We're going to go ahead and look at verse 31, John eight and verse 31. When you're there, please say amen. amen. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in John, eight thirty-one. then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. If ye continue in my word, then what? Then are ye my disciples indeed. So keep this in mind. Jesus is telling you and I that people with a past experience are not his disciples. The text is very clear. If you do what? Continue in my word. So in other words, you and I cannot gloat on when we used to be surrendered to Jesus. We can't talk about when we used to be on fire for God. We can't talk about when we used to be religious and all those things, because once we emphasize that term used to, that means that it's not a continuing experience. It's left in the past. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples? Indeed, continuing is not a past experience. It's a present experience. Are you following And notice that he says, continue in my word. John 17, 17 tells us sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So we find that the Bible is saying that we ought to have a present experience in his truth. Present truth is to be an experience with us day by day in a continuum, not just a concept that's in our minds that we remember from back in the days. Are you following Now, after Jesus gives counsel to say, these are those who are my disciples indeed, he then says in verse 32, what's that wonderful statement in verse 32? It says, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth will do what? Make you free. Now, the Bible tells us and assures us that we shall know the truth, and the truth will make us free. Now, the reason why I find this statement to be very powerful is because you'll notice that in verse 33, the people who heard it didn't even get it. They, 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 they began to wonder and say to themselves, you see it, you read it. It says very clearly, hey, we're Abraham's seed. We've never been in bondage to any man. What are you talking about? It's like it totally flew over their heads. You following? Jesus has to make it more plain to their mind in verse 34. Now, notice what he says in verse 34. He says, Jesus answered them, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the what? Servant of sin. So Jesus was trying to show them the reason that I am presenting truth to you is to make you free, because even though you have a level of autonomy as a nation, you clearly are still in the bondage of sin. So now he wants to give them truth so that they can be made free from the bondage of sin. This is the great goal of Jesus. This is the great goal of the plan of salvation. This is the great goal of present truth. This is the great goal of the three angels' messages. This is the great goal of the seven-day Adventist church, is to give a message that makes people free. Keep this in mind. It was lies that brought bondage into the world. Is that right? And so as it was lies that brought bondage into the world, Christ knew the best way to counter it was to give them truth. And truth makes people free. Now, I want you to catch this. This was so much in the mind of Christ about giving people truth that when Jesus had to find a term best to explain who he was, it says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the literal embodiment of truth. Amen. And truth makes people free. So freedom comes through Jesus. Now, understanding this, Jesus was so caught up in giving people the truth that I want you to see what the Bible says in Matthew, the 16th chapter, as we transition from Christ, the truth now to the church, the truth. Go to Matthew, the 16th chapter and watch this now. Matthew, the 16th chapter, Jesus is having a dialogue with his disciples. And I want you to see what the Bible says in John, the 16th chapter now. And we're going to start at verse 13, John 16 and verse 13. Oh, I'm so sorry. Matthew. Matthew 16, 13. Amen. Now, the Bible says in Matthew 16 and verse 13, it says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, son Elias, and others, Jeremiah, so one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto them Blessed art thou Simon Bar Jonah for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee but my Father which is in heaven Now notice verse 18 It says and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter and upon this rock the rock that was confessed Christ upon this rock I will build my what church, church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it So we see Jesus, the truth, now talking about the church. Now, look at how Jesus describes the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Notice this, 1 Timothy, the third chapter. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to see now how God spoke to the hearts of men as he wanted to demonstrate to the people the whole design of the church. Did you know that this is what the church is supposed to be? Notice what the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're now going to go ahead and consider verse 15. In verse 15 of 1 Timothy 3, we find a beautiful breakdown of what the church really is supposed to be all about. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 3, 15, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou artest to behave thyself where? In the house of God, which is the what? Church of the living God. And look at the character of the church. The what? The pillar and ground of truth. When a world is filled with darkness, they should be able to find some light of God's truth and love. And God designed that he wanted his church to be that light. He wanted this church to be that light in the world so that when people could not find truth anywhere else, they should be able to find it at the church where it's supposed to be the pillar and ground of truth. Are you following so far? All right. Very good. Now. Because of the fact that Christ said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The reason why is because you cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth, the Bible says. So therefore, the gates of hell cannot prevail against truth, brothers and sisters. So if we find that the church ever got to a point where now the enemy was prevailing, it is only because there has been a downgrade of truth. truth. You're following very good. You're following very good. You're sticking with me. Now, watch this. I'm taking my time, brothers and sisters, because we have not gotten to the meat of this message yet. I want you to stay with me. Now, look at this. The success that Christ had, the success that Paul had, the success that the apostles and the patriarchs and the prophets had. They were for many reasons. But one reason that is typically ignored is that they all understood their their enemies devices. Jesus now is telling us about the truth. He says, well, when I gave my church and when I gave the truth, it was designed to make people free. And Jesus is the embodiment of truth. And when he raised up the church, it was supposed to be the pillar and ground of truth. Now, Christ wanted the truth to get throughout all the world through the medium of the church. That's what that was the way he wanted to do it. The church was supposed to be the agency that he wanted to use to get the truth out. Now, watch this. Go to the book of Second Thessalonians, chapter two. Stick with me. Second Thessalonians. Chapter two. Notice what the Bible says as we now go to Second Thessalonians, chapter two. Now we encounter prophecy. The very church that God raised up to be the instrument to bring about truth to the world so that the world may be made free. Paul prophesied of something that was going to happen. The Bible says in Second Thessalonians, chapter two, it says, now we beseech you, brethren. a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul was telling them that a great attack was going to come upon the church, and great controversy spells it out like this. Notice what it says in great controversy, page 49, building on this very same prophetic utterance. It says the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the Thessalonians foretold the great apostasy which would result in the establishment of the papal power. He goes on to say he declared that the day of Christ should not come except... There come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And furthermore, the apostle warns his brethren that the mystery of iniquity doth already work. So this power was already working in his days, and it was going to graduate as time progressed. It says, even at that early date, he saw creeping into the church errors that would prepare the way for the development of the papacy. Now, we see then that the church, though God raised it up, it was designed to do many wonderful things. In fact, when you you see, when we think about God's church in the beginning of time, if we were to look at God's church, there was a church that was established through the faithful souls. Acts of the Apostles, page 11, tells us very clearly that it was the faithful souls, those were the ones who always constituted the church. So Satan, he always wanted to attack on par of the existence of the church. Watch this. When there were faithful souls, Satan says, I'll attack the church by developing what kind of souls? Unfaithful souls. You find this example through Abel, Seth, Enos, and then the unfaithful would be individuals like Cain and Lamech. Eventually, after God was working simply through faithful souls, eventually God was now going to go ahead and told Abraham, I'm going to develop a nation. So that became phase two. Phase two in God's church, you had a chosen nation. Satan says, I'll counter that with what? Rebellious nations. And therefore, you see the chosen nation, Israel, the rebellious nations, the Amalekites, the Hittites and so on and so forth. Eventually, we know that God, according to Daniel 9, 24 through 27, gave Israel a probationary time to get their act together. Did they get their act together? No, no they did not. So obviously, in A.D. 34, that's when their probation closed and the transition from the chosen nation. And now we had what is known as the Christian church or the apostolic church. Satan says, no problem. I'll challenge it by developing the apostate church. And so we find that there was the Christian church with the apostles, and then there was the apostate church with the papacy. Satan is constantly challenging on par to always take down and suppress God's church, God's truth. Are you following so far? Good. Now, notice this. Go to Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation, the 12th chapter. Let's go there now. We know that once these attacks started to take place, eventually, The persecution got so hard that God's church had to go through an experience. Notice how Revelation, the 12th chapter, begins to bring this out. In Revelation, the 12th chapter, notice what the Bible says as we now consider verses 13 and 14. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 now, it says, And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly where? Into the wilderness where she is nourished for a what? Times, times and half a time from the face of the serpent. God's church was no longer able now to have this open, outright worship as a result of the heavy persecution coming from the apostate church. Are you following? So now, because of this, we find that there had to be a redevelopment of God's church openly so that it can continue to be what it was supposed to be. The pillar and ground of truth reaching the world so the people can be made what? Free. Free. Very good. Now. You know the story of all these reformers, brothers and sisters. Time went on and you had, of course, John Wycliffe. He brings people back to the Bible. You have individuals like Martin Luther who brings about justification by faith. You have John Wesley who comes along and brings about sanctification by faith. He was one of the first people used to use that term called perfection. And then, of course, you have all these individuals, Roger Williams, who talks about religious liberty and all of these things that were fundamentals of the Christian faith, piece by piece, started to come together. And how can we forget, obviously, that time when a man by the name of William Miller. This American farmer who comes along and God speaks to his heart and he studies the word. And obviously he sees the prophecies of Daniel and he starts to study them. And of course, he proclaims the second coming of Jesus Christ. But we know the story, brothers and sisters, while all these pieces of truths were coming together God's church was still not ready to come back out into the forefront to fulfill the work that it was designed to do, to be the pillar and ground of truth, to make people what? Free. Free. So eventually, 1844 comes. I'm fast forwarding because my focus is not to go through all these historical texts. You know these things. Eventually, the time comes 1844 and the people go through what? A A great disappointment, right? But eventually, the brethren, they start coming together. You know, they started praying. They started seeking the Lord. They started wondering, okay, well, where do we go wrong? And how is it that we fell short? And you know that wonderful story of Hiram Edson walking through the cornfield and all these beautiful things. And they became, they, they started to understand. They went back to the blueprint of the Bible. They started to study the blueprints. And as they went back to the blueprint of the Bible, they began to discover what message? They discovered the sanctuary message. And as they discovered that beautiful sanctuary message, they discovered, oh, there is not Jesus was going to come. The earth is not the sanctuary, but there's a sanctuary where in heaven. So now they realize that God drew all the plans. God wrote out all of the different things as it relates to the sanctuary structure. And in the sanctuary, did you know that everything the Bible calls truth you could find in the sanctuary? The Bible says in John 16 and verse 13 that God's spirit is truth. The spirit of God is found in the sanctuary as represented through that wonderful oil. The Bible tells us thy law is true. Psalm 119, 142. The law of God is in the most holy place. The Bible clearly tells us thy word is true. That's the bread right there in the holy place. Jesus says, I am the truth. That was the high priest in there. Everything that the Bible calls truth that has sanctifying power, we find in the sanctuary. So when the sanctuary came together back into the minds of the people, once again, now that they understood the full gospel plan, I want you to see what took place. You see, with the Advent faith, their foundation was a little different from the seven day Adventist faith. Often we call ourselves Adventists. And we are, but we're more than that. Because if I go to my Pentecostal friends, they may say, yeah, we're Adventist too. Let's all slap five together. If you go to our Baptist friends, they may say, oh, yeah, we're Adventist too. And so on and so forth. You follow? You see, the foundation of the Adventist faith was right here. Notice what it says. It says the scripture, which above all others, had been both the foundation and central pillar of the what faith? The Advent faith. Is that talking about 7 day Adventists? Mm-mm. No, it is not. It says the scripture, which above all others had been both the foundation and central pillar of the Advent faith was the declaration unto two thousand and three hundred days. Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. These had been familiar words to all believers in the Lord's soon coming. So that was definitely the declaration that was connected as the foundation and central pillar of the Advent faith. Now, is that not a text that is a central pillar to the Seventh-day Adventist faith? Amen. Yes, it is. But here's the differential mark. Watch this now. You see, when we consider the foundation of the seventh day Adventist faith, notice the difference. Tell me if you see it. It says here, coming from Evangelism 221, the correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. Do you see the difference? Before 1844, was there a correct understanding of the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary? No. No, there was not. So while it is true that Daniel 8.14 still remains as a foundation, the Daniel 8.14 text with the correct understanding is what gave us all the truth back. And once all that truth came back, God says, now I am ready to once again establish my visible church and that they may go forward and once again be the pillar and ground of truth so that they can get the message out to the people so that the people can be made free. Amen. Very good. Now, Satan was not very happy about this. When Satan saw that all of these truths had once again come back together, and now God would have a church on earth that had all of these truths, you see, we must understand before the understanding of the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary, do you know that there was not a complete truth yet? That was given to the people. Let me show you an example. When you see that, you see a key, right? You see that key, ancient looking key? Notice this quotation. The subject of the sanctuary was the what? Was the key, which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. Notice what it says next. Now, it goes on to say it opened to view a what kind of what kind of system? A complete system of truth. So before. The disappointment of 1844. Was there a complete system of truth? No, it was not. But afterwards, when they had the correct understanding. Now, was there a complete system of truth? That is what Satan is afraid of. More than anything else. When the complete system of truth was coming back together again, that's what began to cause the knees to buckle Because notice, it opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to the light the position and work of his people. Great Controversy 423. Now, when this took place, let's go back at that chart we looked at. You remember Satan's method of attack. It starts out with faithful souls. Satan said, all right, unfaithful souls. Then it would go on to chosen nations. Satan says, all right, rebellious nations. Then it would go on, and it would, of course, now graduate to the Christian church. Satan says, all right, the apostate church. And then it was now that God established the remnant church. Satan says, no problem. I'll have it through my fallen churches, and we'll call them Babylon. So we see on par battles time and time again. Now, look at Revelation 12, very popular text, but let's turn there for edification. Revelation 12. Stay there with me. In Revelation 12 and verse 17 now, notice what the Bible says. And I believe Revelation 12, 17 has not reached its fullest fulfillment yet. But I believe it definitely has reached a partial. In other words, there is still a great level of the wrath of Satan that is yet to be demonstrated against the remnant church that is in the very near future. But I also believe that there is a partial revelation of that wrath or that anger that is now even in our time today. Now, notice what the Bible says in Revelation 12, 17. It says, and the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it clear that the dragon is wroth. He is angry and he wants to attack God's church. Are you following so far? Now watch this. Satan. When he would attack God's church, when Satan would do that, what was Satan really after? Was he after the church? Was that what he was attacking? What was he really attacking? You're a sharp group. What was he attacking? He was attacking the truth. Because Satan knew it was lies that brought bondage, so therefore he's attacking the church because the church was supposed to be the pillar and ground of truth. Now, here's the question. Satan attacks the church because it is designed to be the pillar and ground of truth. Satan's real issue is with the what? Is with the truth. Now, watch this. Watch this. Because of the fact that Satan wants to attack the truth. I believe we can understand his devices on how he attacks. Can I tell you why? Because before there was a church that was the pillar and ground of truth, there was first who? Jesus. And Jesus was the what? Embodiment of truth. Did Satan attack Jesus? Yes, he did. Because Satan was after Jesus because Jesus was the truth and Jesus wanted to make people. Free. So watch this. So Satan, he attacked Jesus. And now because Christ has ascended back and now the church is still here, now he's going to attack the church because the church is the pillar and ground of truth, which is designed to make people free. So watch this. If I really want to know how he attacks so that I can identify him and know how to make sure to stand, though the heavens may fall, then what I need to do is find out, well, how did he attack Jesus? Because Jesus is the pillar and ground of truth. He is the embodiment of truth. So remember, Satan's whole mission is to attack the truth. So watch this. How did Satan attack Jesus? What was he aiming for when he wanted to kill Jesus? Now, keep in mind, Satan was bothering Jesus from the day Jesus was born. Satan sent armies after him. Satan would always have people. Satan would use even his little companions and friends. Satan would use anybody to taunt and bother Jesus. But when Satan wanted to kill him, when Satan finally saw I have an opportunity to take him out, the question is, how did he do it? What was it that actually killed Jesus? Notice this. When we consider what it was that killed Jesus, because remember, this was what Satan was attacking. Do you know that Satan had a vital point that he wanted to attack Jesus? A vital point. You know, what that vital point was. Go to the book of Psalms, the 69th division. Well, in fact, you can go there for note for those who are taking notes, but the, the text will come up on the screen in Psalm 69, verse 20. This is a messianic psalm. Notice what Jesus says. Look at this. Reproach hath broken my heart. You see that the messianic psalm. Jesus is saying reproach hath broken my heart. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. So there was something that broke the heart of Jesus. When the heart is broken, obviously it can bring forth death. What is it that broke the heart of Jesus? Reproach. I wonder what the Bible calls reproach. Proverbs, the 14th chapter. Notice this Proverbs 14 and verse 34. In Proverbs 14 and verse 34, what is it that the Bible calls reproach? Because whatever reproach is, that's what killed Jesus, it broke his heart. It says reproach has broken my heart and I look for some to take pity, but there was none and for comforters. But I found none. And Proverbs fourteen thirty four says righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. What was it that killed Jesus? You see, brothers and sisters, when Christ made you and I. His love was indissolubly linked to you and I yeah. and Satan knows that you and I are the apple of his eye. If you can read that in the Bible, the Bible makes it very clear that we are the apple of God's eyes. Zechariah 2 and verse 8. Now watch this. Satan knows if I can't get Jesus, then I'll get those whom he loves. And when Satan could work in you and I and get us to fall into the practice and love of sin, brothers and sisters, it would break the heart of Christ because his whole mission was to make us free from sin. Are you following now, I just showed you that from the Bible, but now you can read it from the spirit of prophecy. You see, the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, they say the same things. Ellen White just realized people are having visual issues. So therefore, God just gave us bifocals through the spirit of prophecy to make the points in his word plain to us. Yeah. Yeah. The Bible shows that Jesus died of a broken heart. But Ellen White makes the same point here in Desire of Ages 772. But it was not the spirit thrust. It was not the pain of the cross that caused the death of Jesus. That cry uttered with a loud voice, at the moment of death, the stream of blood and water that flowed from his side declared that he died of a broken heart. It says, His heart was broken by mental anguish. He was slain by the sin of the world. Now, brothers and sisters, Satan wants to attack what? The truth. He first attacked it through the embodiment of truth, which was who? Jesus. But now there's a pillar and ground of truth. And that pillar and ground of truth is called the what? The church. And so it is that Satan says, attack the heart. That's always been Satan's method. Attack the heart. That's his aim. He's like a sniper. He's like a sharpshooter. He doesn't just shoot randomly. He has a very specific aim. Attack and hit the heart, brothers and sisters. That's his method. Question. If someone were to ask you, what's Satan's target point against the remnant? What would it be? The heart. Is that right? But do you know, brothers and sisters, very few of us know where the heart is. I remember a time as a child and when I was told to put my hand on my heart and I put my hand right here. Didn't know. There are many people today that do not even know where their heart is. And yet here's the exact area. This is what Satan is aiming for. He's aiming for the heart. I wonder what makes up the heart today. Because the same way he attacked Jesus and aimed for his heart is the same way he's attacking the remnant and aiming for their heart. Now I want to show you that there's a two-fold heart principle that we're going to look at. You want to know the first heart that inspiration tells us that he was attacking? You know where that place is? You know that place is? It's the headquarters of our faith. What's it called? Do you know that's where he has specifically aimed his weapon? Look at this quote. If the heart of the work becomes corrupt, it says the whole church, the how much of the church? The whole church church in its various branches and interests scattered abroad over the face of the earth suffers in consequence. Mm -hmm. Satan's what? Satan's what? Satan's chief work is where? At the headquarters of our faith. He spares no pains to corrupt men in responsible positions and to persuade them to be unfaithful to their several trusts. Volume four, of the testimonies, page 210. Now, I thought about it. I said, why, why would Satan want to attack the headquarters? Why, why would why would that be his mission? Why would that be his focus to say, I want to attack there? That's my chief work. And you know what God did? He said, Well, go to Second Chronicles 12 and let me show you. So let me let me show you something in Second Chronicles, chapter 12. You see. The Bible declares that this is an old tactic of Satan. He wants to attack the most vital points where he can do the most damage. I want you to see this in 2nd Chronicles chapter 12. 2nd Chronicles chapter 12. And when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. amen. In 2nd Chronicles chapter 12, it talks about a king by the name of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a king. He was the head of a nation. He was, as you would call it, one who was at the top. He would be recognized. Him and his entourage would be considered like a headquarters to the nation, to the church. And the Bible says something about Rehoboam that we would do well to consider. And I think this is the reason why he aims his weapons in very specific points. Notice what it says. It says, and it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord. So here goes the head of the nation. And what he's doing is it says he forsook the law of the Lord. But how does the sentence finish? It says how much? And all Israel with him. You see, if a head falls. Then it is very typical that the body is going to follow. So Satan understood this. That's why he always aimed for heads. That's why he always aimed for top ones. That's why he said, let me get the people at the top, because if I get them, I get the bottom. Satan believes in maximization as well. And therefore, he aims, and he specifically says, I have my guns aimed in a very specific direction. Now, brothers and sisters, let me make it very clear. I firmly believe that this is God's church, And I firmly believe that God has raised up this church to finish the work, which means it makes perfect sense that it would be Satan's chief work to try to tear it down. Now watch this. I started thinking about it. When we were given our work, we were told God's purpose in giving the third angel's message to the world is to prepare people to stand true to him during the investigative judgment. So what's the whole purpose of the third angel's message? To prepare people to stand true to him during the investigative judgment. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's why Revelation 1011 tells us, prophesy again. That's us. Our mission is to prophesy again, giving the third angel's message. Amen? Amen? Our whole mission. Now look at this. It says, This is the purpose for which we establish and maintain what? Our publishing houses. In other words, the only reason why the literature work was even raised up was so that books that were filled with truth for this time could educate ignorant people to show them how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. Amen. Are those all the books that come out of our publishing houses today? No. What's the next thing on the list? Our schools. Did you know the whole purpose of a Seventh-day Adventist school? The whole purpose of a seven-day Adventist school was so that people, when they graduate, that they could leave knowing how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. Now, brothers and sisters, I would ask anyone this, especially if there are any workers here from our schools. Ask yourself the question, where is it in our curriculums that we make sure that not one student leaves our school without understanding how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment? Are you following? What's next on the list? Sanitariums are, the whole purpose of a sanitarium was not to bring in sick sinners so they can leave healthy sinners. The whole purpose of our sanitariums was so that sick sinners can come in and they can leave healthy saints knowing how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. Are you following? You see, it is when we understand this that we will understand why a revival and reformation is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs, and to seek this should be our first work. Brothers and sisters, when we see what has taken place just very recently, where all of these internal battles and internal frustrations are happening amongst ourselves, we're testifying that we're giving Satan the upper hand But I thought about it. Be honest with me. Now, I'm going to be honest with you because I'm going to bring out some final points here because this is going to continue in tomorrow's workshops. Be honest with me. When I think of a headquarters, I usually think of a place that is very well protected. Is it just me that thinks that or is that you too? When you typically think of a headquarters somewhere, you think of a place that's pretty well protected and it's not easy to get into. Is that right? I began to wonder. We can look at a lot of different problems in our church. We can see all these different ways that Satan has definitely formed a method of attack and he has definitely attacked. And that's what he's doing. He's trying to steal away the truth. That's why it's possible today for people to go to churches and many a times, not all churches, praise God. We heard one church today that gave an announcement that they said, look, we believe, we stand for the truths that was given to this movement. Praise God! But we know that there are a lot of churches that people can visit and the last thing they hear is anything about the three angels' messages. The last thing they hear is about victory over sin. The last thing that they can hear is all the fundamental truths that have been given to this movement. That's why in our united prayer we were talking about, oh Lord, have mercy on us, that we've turned away! But here's my question. If he's trying to get into the headquarters, I, one day in prayer, was saying, Father, how did he get in? <laughs> now, I'm serious. I, I'm a big question man when I study. I have lots of reverent questions that I ask God. Father, help me understand. How did he get into the headquarters? And God said, it's simple. He said, go back to the blueprint. So you know what I did? I went to 2 Chronicles chapter 12 again. Now, go there with me one more time. 2 Chronicles 12 chapter 12, and I want to show you something here, because I began to think about it. How, how did he get in? And I want you to notice what the Bible says again. When we went to 2 Chronicles 12, did you notice in verse 1 that it talked about how Rehoboam, it says that he followed, or rather, he, he, he did not follow the law of the Lord, and it says that he caused many other things people to follow him. You remember reading that? Well, as, as I was reading that, brothers and sisters, I began to do a little bit more research, and I discovered that Rehoboam, who was clearly the son of Solomon, Rehoboam followed after the examples of what he saw in his home, In other words, when, when the question came to my mind, how did he get in? How does Satan get into this fortress, this headquarters? And God was saying, it's very simple, the same way he got in in times past. Go to the book of 2 Kings chapter 19 with me. 2 Kings, 2 Kings, go there with me. 2 Kings, started thinking about this, it really started to grab my attention here. Second Kings, we're going to chapter 19. Oh, no, bear with me. No, 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 sorry. 1 Samuel 2. I apologize. 1 Samuel 2. 1 Samuel 2. In 1 Samuel, the second chapter, we find that the Bible shows often how challenges would come in amongst the people. And I want you to see how the Bible spells this out as we consider 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we look at verse 12. When we think about Eli, we know that Eli did not follow his fatherly duties as he should have. The Bible spells it out by saying in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were sons of who? Belial. It says they knew not the Lord. Now Eli was a priest. But his sons were sons of who? Belial, sons of a devil. And they knew not the Lord. And it got to a point that look at what it says in verse 17. It says in verse 17, it says, wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. They would literally pervert the offerings of God to the point that it says their sin was very great before the Lord. And it says for men aboard the offering of the Lord, their misbehavior, their ill conduct, their sinful behavior got so bad that it caused the people to hate the worship service. And this is something that started where? In the home. You see, before Satan could ever get inside of the church, he first found his way in the home. Before he could ever do that, I want you to think about this because we talk a lot about revival and reformation. We talk a lot about getting things right in the world and in the church. Brothers and sisters, there'll be nothing right in the world, there'll be nothing right in the church until we start getting things right where? In the home. In the home. It was what took place in the home. You see, the way Satan can manifest himself and get inside of the heart of the work is because he got inside of the first heart first. You see, the first heart, brothers and sisters, we're told in Adventist home page 15, society is composed of families and it's what the heads of families make it. Out of the heart are the issues of life and the heart of the community, of the church and of the nation is the household. Satan is aiming for the heart. Satan says the only reason why my character is being manifested in various aspects, even in the church today, that was designed to be the pillar and ground of truth. Is he said, because before I got into that heart, I first got into that heart. And it amazes me that we can go ahead and we can go ahead and critique people. We'll say, oh, how dare they make that vote and just defy what Elder Wilson said. But brothers and sisters, how many times do wives defy what the husband has said as it relates to what should be done in the home? How many times does the husband defy what the wife was trying to establish as it relates to the home? You see, there was a lot of defying that was taking place in the home before there was a defying of what took place in the church. Many a times, brothers and sisters, while we're pointing fingers and talking about, oh, look at this problem, look at that problem. Oh, look at them. They don't preach any truth in the church. And that's what people say. But the question is, are you living truth in your home? Are you following? God is trying to bring it across to our minds. That Satan's device is, he says, I attack hearts. Satan says, that's what I aim my weapons for. And he says, oh, yes, I'm aiming for that headquarters. But before I get in there, I first get into the home. And then when I get into the home, that's when I get there. That's where I get anywhere. And that's why God is trying to appeal to our hearts. And he says, listen, do you really want to see things get right in the church? Do you really want to see things get right in the church? You really want to see that? You really want to see revival and reformation in the church? You really want to see that? Yes. Then, brothers and sisters, you know what God is saying? God is saying the revival and reformation has to start in your home first. Because there will never be a right church when there's wrong homes. Never. There'll never be any seal of God while there's wrong homes. I heard my dear friend talk about the receiving of the seal of the living God. Volume 5 of the Testimony to the Church, page 213, says very clearly, it says there are many who teach the truth who will not receive the seal of God in their foreheads. It says they had the light of truth. They knew their master's will. They understood every point of our faith. But it says, but they did not have corresponding works. And one day I said, what was the corresponding works? God said, read the next sentence. And you know what the corresponding works was that they did not do? That God says, I will not give you the seal. It says they should have commanded their households after them. There will be no seal of God while we still have wrong homes. And if there's no seal of God, there's no loud cry. If there's no loud cry, there's no finishing of the work. If there's no finishing the work, there is no revival and reformation. If there is no revival and reformation, then we still have dead churches. If there's still a dead church, then we still have dead nations. And if we still have dead nations, we still have a dead country. And if we still have a dead country, we still have a dead world. And brothers and sisters, everybody's going to die if we don't get the home right. You see, it's bigger than just simply having a happy home so we can all just be at home with each other and just smiling. God says, if we do not develop a well-ordered and well-disciplined home, the work will not be finished. The gospel will not be finished. It won't do what it was supposed to do. God is not going to pour out his spirit upon a bunch of individuals who are fighting, fussing and rebelling and all of these different things and neglecting their duties as it relates to the home. And that's why Satan says, I aim for hearts and the heart of the community, the heart of the nation. The heart of the church is the household. When the household gets right and the household becomes a pillar and ground of truth, then that's when the church can get right and the church becomes the pillar and ground of truth. And when the church gets right and the church becomes that pillar and ground of truth, then the church can get the truth out to the communities, to the nation, to the country and to the world. And people can be made free and the work can be finished. And so, brothers and sisters, beginning tomorrow, beginning tomorrow. In our next seminar. We're going to talk about. How can I know if Satan's in my home? I'm serious. How can I know if Satan is in my home? Then, once we identify him, how do I get him out? That's our next seminar tomorrow. How can I know if Satan is in my home? And then how can God help me get him out? My heart hurts, brothers and sisters, when I see what's happening in the Adventist home today. God said that he wanted our homes to be a little heaven on earth. And today, brothers and sisters, there are very few people who go home and honestly feel like they're experiencing heaven. Very few people. If you were to interview the average seven-day Adventist and ask them the question, say, hey, honestly, when you go home, do you believe that it's like heaven? Do you honestly believe that? Do you know the majority of Seventh-day Adventists would say, no. God says, I want to change that. But brothers and sisters, we can't have a happy relationship with Jesus as long as that third party remains in the relationship. He has to be removed. He needs to be identified. And then through the power of Christ, he must be removed. And this is what God wants to do in your home, in my home, and in all of our homes. Because brothers and sisters, when we let Jesus finish that work inside of our hearts and in our homes, it is so much easier and so much simpler to do everywhere else. And so tonight, I just, I I literally, I, I prayed and I said, Father, you know, help me get these points across to simply get us to the point that I wanna hear your honest response. Tonight, we simply discovered this. True success involves many things that we have heard over and over again. You've been to several seminars where you heard about the importance of prayer, the importance of Bible study, the importance of evangelism, the importance of this, 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 and this. You've been in several seminars like that, but here's the thing. Very few of us have learned, listen, you gotta understand your enemy. You got to understand his devices. You got to understand how he works. And then you need to access a power source that makes you stronger than him so you can have him removed. Tonight's mission was to simply give us just a little pictorial. These, These feeble efforts of preaching was to give you a pictorial of what Jesus wanted the truth to do. And how he said the church was designed to do that. But through several challenges and attacks. The church went down simply to come back up again. But now Satan says, I'm throwing out some final blows because he even knows his time is short. Therefore, he says, I'm wroth, and I'm going to go ahead and make war with that remnant. And we saw that as he makes war with that remnant, we had to understand, well, how does he make the war? What is he trying to do? And we found out that he aims for hearts. Because we looked at the embodiment of truth, which was Jesus. And we watched how he attacked him. He attacked his heart. And so it is, Satan says, Well, now I want to attack the heart of the church. We saw the heart of the work takes place at the headquarters. That's his chief work. He says, I'm focusing on taking that thing down. I want to get in there as much as possible. And brothers and sisters, there's several areas where he has crept in and he has done his several damages, and there's a warfare going on. I praise God for the warriors that he set up, especially over the last vote. I praise God that he set up Elder Wilson. He's one of the warriors. He's fighting a fight, brothers and sisters, but I'll tell you this. He cannot fight that fight by himself. You got to get to a point that you love God and you love truth enough that you take a stand. Even if it means the cost of your ministry, even if it means the cost of whatever it takes, you got to get to a point that you're willing to say, all right, we need to understand that it's time to stand. And Satan is attacking. We see that because there's several things that God had erected this church to do that, quite honestly, brothers and sisters, we're not getting that work done. We are not getting that work done. You got to be honest with yourself. It's not getting done. But the question was, why? And God says, because before he can penetrate that heart, he first penetrated the ultimate heart, the home. He got in there and he exercises his will in the home. And then when we get positions of leadership, we just take what we learn from home and we bring it into the new home, the church. Do you know what blew me away? My final point. You know what blew me away? I just found this out this week. For, for two years, I have been teaching how did Satan get into the headquarters? How, how did he get his ways, his tactics? and the, How did he get there? And when I thought about it, it was like the Lord impressed upon my mind because before he got into that I he got into the first heart, the home. And then he showed me various texts in the Bible and I've was, I was been like, wow, this is amazing. This week, I read volume four of the testimonies, page 210. That's what you saw? The Lord impressed my mind. Just read a few pages before. Do you know that the whole chapter that whole chapter, you know what it deals with? When it got when it got to the point in page two ten where it talked about Satan's chief work is at the headquarters, he's trying to he's he's aiming his weapons at the headquarters. Do you know what the pages before was talking about? The home. And she showed the neglect of parents and how they did not rear up their children right. And then it says that as a result of not rearing up the children right, she says eventually they begin to go to our schools and they bring corruption to the schools. And then she says, and then after they do that, she, she kept saying, she kept saying, she says, after that, after the schools, she says, then they go to the office. And she kept using the word the office, the office, the office. And I was like, what is this office? And then eventually she said the office. And then she said the headquarters. And I said, Mercy. And she literally showed the chain effect of neglect in the home and the kind of leaders it can produce and the high positions they hold and how many of them, if they're not careful and their minds tap into the mind of Satan rather than the mind of Christ, they become agents in his hands, do his biddings and then filter that poison out through the rest of the branches. Brothers and sisters, when I read that this week, I said, Father, this is incredible. God was saying we got to address the home. And so tonight, my appeal is very simple. If you know I need to get some things right in my home or I want to clearly identify the enemy in my home, So that i can tap into my power source of jesus to know how to get him out of my home if that's your desire i'm going to ask you to stand with me you're standing with me saying hey look i want to identify him i want to know and then as i know i want to tap into that power source to know how to get him out young people you're going to find that you're going to need a higher level of cooperation there's going to be much that god is going to call you to do as youth adults god is going to call us too. We must understand that there's no need for revival and reformation to a church that's doing great. We got to start being honest with ourselves. If we need a revival and reformation, it's because things are not going great. God says, I want to change it. But it starts in the home. You can put all the prayer meetings you want. We could have all the Bible studies we want. We could preach all the sermons we want. But if all it does is stay at the church level but never gets into the home level, brothers and sisters, it's a waste of time. And that's why first things first. Amen? Amen. And so as you stand, know that Christ stands with you. Know that he's going to give you power. He's going to show us wondrous things from his word. Most importantly, he's going to give us truth. And that truth is going to make us free from whatever the bondage is that is presently in our homes and how we can be free indeed. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that even in the midst of the foolishness of preaching, you can still get your points across to your people. Lord, I pray, show us how to get our homes right. We're living in such troublesome times, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. We can be more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And so Father, as you've given so many principles of success, we thank you for this principle tonight of understanding the devices of how our enemy works. And may we fight the good fight of faith so that by your power, he can be removed from our hearts and our homes. Thank you, Lord, for this blessed privilege, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.